Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. April 2011, a warehouse in Simi Valley, California. Stephen Fischler, a comic book dealer, is standing outside. Next to him is Los Angeles police detective Donald Harisic. The two are about to go inside the warehouse, where both men think there's an ending to this story. The story of four stolen comic books from the home of Nicolas Cage, including the world's most valuable title, Action Comics Number 1. That comic might be just a few feet away. After 11 years of searching, it's tantalizingly close. But while they suspect the comic is inside, they don't know who might be with it. So Harisik shares some words of caution. Here's what Stephen remembers. And they gave me sort of the lay of the land of how they wanted this to go down. Detective Harisik would pose as my partner. And they said to me, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to do a comic deal. Obviously, this is not a normal comic deal because it's a stolen book. But he says, if, if there's trouble, anybody brings out a gun, hit the floor. And I went, gulp. I said, uh, uh, if somebody brings out a gun, don't worry, I can do that. That sounds, well, intense. But there are a few reasons why Donald Harisic is giving the warning. The first is that this isn't his first flirtation with people who are, knowingly or not, in possession of stolen art. And people in possession of stolen art can be dangerous. The second reason is that Donald Harisic doesn't plan on letting the men inside know he's a cop, or that several cops are hiding nearby. At least, not just yet. So there's risk. But the risk is worth it for both of them. Harisic has an opportunity to add another recovery to his storied career as an art detective. And Fischler can put to bed a mystery that's been eating at him since 2000. The mystery of how Nick Cage's comics were ripped off his wall during a party in a brazen and, so far successful, attempt to relieve him of his prized possessions. Anything could have happened to the comics. They could have been lost, or destroyed, or damaged. But if the picture sent to Steven just a couple of days prior was any hint, the most important comic had survived the past decade in one piece. To confirm it, all the two of them had to do was walk through the door. That was it. The two walk inside. Then Stephen notices something out of the corner of his eye. We get out and we go into an office and there was an individual standing outside and as soon as we went in he must have realized who I was he went into the office 15 seconds after detective and I went in 
and I went, hmm, kind of weird. He was waiting outside. And then I look at his hand. He's holding a manila folder. And I go, that book was pictured in a manila folder, but I can't see what's in it. And the individual with the manila folder is called into an inner office. He's now sitting in this office, and the manila folder is now open, and there's the book on like a little acrylic pedestal. And we sit down. Yeah, that's an original action one. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 7, Strange Visitor. Two thousand eleven was turning out to be a tumultuous year for Cage. It was a time when, approaching his fifties, he was on shaky ground as a leading man. He was drifting away from his action star heyday and many years removed from his last Oscar nomination. A major Disney movie, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, had disappointed a year earlier. Cage's 2011 slate of films weren't much better, with little-remembered titles like Season of the Witch and Drive Angry. Another turn as Marvel's Ghost Rider character debuted at the, quote, butt numathon to a reportedly poor reception. This was the beginning of a decade spent largely in the direct-to-television market, where the movies were often undeserving of Cage's talents. It had happened to John Travolta and to Bruce Willis. Cage liked to say making a lot of low-budget movies was kind of like the old studio system where stars churned out movies, but there was no denying his career had stalled. Professionally, it wasn't his best year. But for our story, there was one bright spot. Art crime, as any good art crime detective will tell you, is a game of patience. Extreme patience. Art thieves may try to convert their illicit goods to money quickly, or they may decide they're far better off sitting on something for years, even decades. The general rule is, if a piece of stolen art doesn't surface immediately, you may not see it for, say, 10 years. Long enough for cops to lose interest and the trail of ownership to grow cold. In the case of Cage's action number one, it was 11 years. Close enough. In an earlier episode, we told you art thefts are often preceded by media coverage of lavish auctions or high-dollar sales. Something to make the thief think about the value of something they could steal. The same can also hold true for art recovery. Someone in possession of a stolen item may see news of its value and how much it's increased since it was taken, and that can be the motivation to finally try and return it to the legitimate market. So what happened in 2011? A few things. In February, Joanne Siegel, the widow of the late Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel, passed away. It was covered in the media, often with a mention of how rare and valuable Action Comics number one was. And in March of that year, Stephen Fischler made some history. His company, Comic Connect, an online marketplace for comics, sold a copy of Amazing Fantasy number 15. That 1962 comic introduced Spider-Man, and it sold for an astounding 1.1 million, a new record for the wall crawler. So what does that have to do with action number one? In all of the ensuing media articles about the sale of Amazing Fantasy number 15, reporters had to make a clarifying remark that while the sale was a record for Spider-Man, it wasn't a comic book record. That honor still belonged to action number one. In 2010, Fischler sold two copies of the comic, one for a million dollars and another for 1.5 million. The latter was the most expensive comic ever sold. So whoever was holding on to the comic taken from Nick Cage's home may have felt a new sense of urgency. And if someone happened to find that comic around that time, well, 
they'd know it was worth quite a bit. Just a couple weeks after news of that sale broke, Dan Dotson and his wife Laura were approached by two men. Dan and Laura run American Auctioneers, a storage locker liquidation business in California. If you've seen the A&E show Storage Wars, you've seen Dan. The premise of what Dan and Laura do is pretty simple to understand, although it's really not an easy job. American Auctioneers is hired by storage unit companies to auction off storage units that aren't up to date on their payments. Say someone rents a storage locker, stuffs it full of their belongings, then stops paying the monthly bill. The storage company is stuck with a bunch of stuff they don't want. So to recoup what they can, they auction off the contents to buyers who hope to profit from what's inside. The buyers can't really see any of it beforehand, just a glimpse. So it's kind of a crapshoot. You might get something valuable or you might get some old clothes. Either way, it makes for really good reality television. American auctioneers, like every liquidator, gives the owners of the lockers every chance to come and collect their things before it's too late. They're required by law to print a public notice in newspapers with the names of the people who are past due on their bills. Those people can swoop back in, even at the last minute. If they can pay up, they get to keep their stuff. If not, it's open season. That's what Dan was doing in March 2011 when he was approached by someone he recognized. A man about 40 years old. The man, whom he knew only as Sylvester, had recently arrived on the storage unit scene. Like a lot of people, he may have been compelled to get into it based on the popularity of storage wars. Either way, he was a new but familiar face. Originally, he had approached Dan's wife, Laura, who's the co-owner of their company. Here's Laura. I just remember his name being Sylvester, and he had a friend with him, and they were they were shorter guys. I just know that when I'm doing my auction and stuff like that, I try to remember the whole crowd, and I try to make look at everybody's face so I don't miss anybody's bid and so forth. And I just remember they were maybe five foot three, each of them, and smaller guys. Laura thought Sylvester and his friend had a question about the auction she and Dan were holding. That was typically why people approached them, to ask questions about how it all works. But Sylvester had something else on his mind. He wanted to invite her to his home. Well, here I am in this auction place, and I'm doing an auction, and I'm on my like last unit, and a guy comes up with a friend and asked me, I said, okay, you're here for the auction, everything is, I gave him the terms real quick, because I realized, oh, he's just showing up. And he said to me, do you have comic books you find in units, and so do you guys have buyers and stuff like that, and could you appraise a comic book for me? Sylvester was looking for guidance. And, you know, and it's really kind of local over here. You could just come on over to my house. And I said, no, I wouldn't be the one that would just come to your house because I had never seen this guy before. And he said, well, my name is Sylvester. And he had a, a, another guy with him. And I recall that they were new to the auction and they were interested in looking at units is what I thought. And I said, last unit, last unit happening right now. And he wants me to please come to his house. And OK, let me look at this last unit. But if you could just come before your next sale. And it seems like, you know, about comic books. I said, listen, I wouldn't be the one to come. Let me give you my husband's information. He will be doing an auction on Saturday. It was the nearest time. And he said to me, okay, well, great. Then I'm going to come and see your husband. And I figured, you know, what my husband and I do is we will look for provenance and we will look for through ephemera and paper stuff if we can find anything online. And I hadn't put it, I put it into my head and kind of out of my head. So Sylvester came back that Saturday, and he brought something with him. And this time, he approached Laura's husband. Here's Dan. So he brought it down to our auction on Saturday, and I was looking at it. You know, I was thumbing through that comic book, and it just looked so nice and pristine. I just, you know, was pretty sure that it was probably a reproduction, but it wasn't. Sylvester explained to Dan that he had just bought a storage locker from American Auctioneers. After cleaning it out and sorting through its contents, he made the discovery of the century, a nearly flawless copy of Action Comics number no. one, 
tucked inside of a large hardcover book. Dan knows a lot about a lot when it comes to stuff people find in storage lockers, from antiques to guns. But he's not an expert in comic books. He didn't know exactly what he was looking at. Not, not really. No, I didn't. I saw that it was a June 1938 10-cent comic, but I didn't realize it was, I didn't realize how special it was at the time. For Dan, there wasn't any thought to trying to get involved. No, no, I, I didn't even realize the value of it. Um, you know, I, and I don't really have connections to buy, you know, comic books. So while he figured this could be something, he decided to pass Sylvester along to someone else. Lalo was, you know, hitting up our auctions at the time, and I just introduced him. I think the guy's name was Sylvester, and I said, Sylvester Mark, Mark Sylvester, you know, knock yourselves out. And then I, you know, I didn't really think anything else of it. Belalo is Mark Belalo, another storage unit liquidator. Mark was relatively new to the scene, too. He would make appearances on Storage Wars, flashing a lot of money to scoop up storage units, wearing sunglasses indoors, and generally being provocative enough to make an impression on reality television. You know, Belalo at the time, I think, really wanted to be on Storage Wars, and and he pretended that we knew each other like forever, and we didn't know each other, you know, forever. But Mark did know about comics, more than Dan and Laura, at any rate. So he and Sylvester got to talking, and Mark said enough to convince Sylvester that he could find a proper buyer for his discovery. He took the comic, put it in the safe of his warehouse in Simi Valley, and then he made a phone call. He called the one person whose name had been in hundreds of newspapers as the man who was earning record prices for rare comic books, including Amazing Fantasy number 15, and the very comic Mark was holding in his hands. Of all the dealers he could have called, Mark called Stephen Fischler. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Stephen Fischler couldn't believe it. The action number one he sold to Cage, the one he had been searching for, just materialized in front of his face. Uh, an employee of mine says the individual contacted him with an action one. And I go to the person's workstation, I look at their computer, and I see in this email a picture of an action one it's not in a bag. It appears to be in photograph while it's sitting in a manila folder. There on screen was the comic, unceremoniously tucked into a manila folder and resting on a car seat. But how could Stephen tell it was the comic? Rare comics have markings, certain distinguishable markings that distance them from the hundreds of similar copies. Stephen felt he knew what Cage's action number one looked like, the way a parent can tell the difference between identical twins. The secret was in the blue banner just over the title logo. There were white markings Stephen knew about, markings other collectors or a thief may not even be aware of. And the markings were there, exactly as Stephen remembered them. And I do a double take. And I will say it probably took me five seconds to realize it was Nick's book. But I found a copy of the, a picture of the book just to be double sure. 
my employee emailed me, forwarding me the original email. I called this individual up. His name was uh, Mark. Uh, he was in Simi Valley. And I thanked him for contacting me. And it looks like a wonderful book. And they wanted to sell it. And he indicated that he was friends with the owner. He's representing the owner. And they said that the book was purchased in an auction, like a storage unit auction. The question was, what exactly did Mark Bellalo want Stephen to do? According to Stephen, it was to authenticate the comic, to make sure it was the genuine article and not a reproduction or a phony, like the one that had turned up in Memphis back in 2002, or the ones unscrupulous eBayers sometimes tried to pass off as the real thing. If it was the real thing, then Mark would go looking for a buyer, one who would pay him at least a million dollars for the comic. And who better to ask for help than the man who was just in the news for setting seven-figure records for comic sales? I had the first million-dollar sale of a comic book. It was another action one. It was uh, before this, and I believe that they heard about this million-dollar sale because it was mine. My name was all over it, and that's where they connected the figure of a million, and I think that that's why they contacted me. So what happened was I sold, see, an action one for a million. Then I sold an action one in 2010 for 1.5. So that was all before, and that was publicized, so that was all before Mark contacted but Mark didn't seem to acknowledge that it could be Nicolas Cage's copy, and Stephen didn't mention it either. If Mark knew it could be Cage's, why go to Cage's comic dealer? Isn't that launching yourself directly in the line of fire? Not exactly. I don't think he did. And my feeling is he just knew that I dealt in action ones and I was prominent dealer. He found a lot of information about me, but not that connection. And I also said to myself, if they know it was stolen from California, well, let's not get a California dealer here because he might really know that this is a stolen book. Let's get a New York guy. Because if, if it's New York, well, maybe there's a smaller chance that he'll know it's stolen. Stephen did two things. And I said, oh, that's great. And I'm, I'm knowing the entire time that this story might not be real, but it doesn't matter because they have the book. And I called Detective Harissic after I got off the phone saying the, the main book, the action one, is in LA. And I said, I'm, I'm being contacted. I have a picture of it. This is the individual's name. I sent him the email. He said, that's it. That's the book. Um, and he wants me to come and look at it. And I booked a, a ticket. So... The coordination happened where I came out the next day, met the detective at the local police station uh, that was near Simi Valley. Harisik, you'll remember, is Donald Harisik, the LAPD art detective, whom Stephen had sparred with a handful of times over the years. To Stephen, Donald hadn't been overly aggressive in hunting down the Cage comics. Art theft was rampant in Los Angeles, and... In fairness to Donald, there was always a lot going on with virtually no manpower devoted to it. Donald had one partner, if that. Still, Donald agreed that Stephen should go and meet with the two of them, with Mark and Sylvester. Donald would accompany him as an associate. It would be a sting operation, one where the contraband wasn't drugs or guns, but a comic book. The next day, Stephen found himself outside Mark Bellalo's warehouse in Simi Valley, California, a massive structure where Mark housed his inventory of items he bought and sold. He dealt in electronics, a thriving eBay business, live auctions, and business was apparently booming. Stephen got the pep talk from Donald, the one where he should duck if someone brought out a gun. But Donald wasn't taking chances. He stationed a number of officers around the warehouse in case backup was needed. 
The situation may have seemed funny on the surface. It was, after all, a comic, but one worth potentially millions of dollars. And when that kind of money is involved, people can be unpredictable. Stephen and Donald walked into the warehouse. Before anyone could say anything, Stephen caught sight of the man with a manila folder. It was a light yellow office folder, the kind of stationery you'd tuck an earnings report in, not a valuable comic. It's a great way for the book to get damaged, wrinkled, pages torn. Suddenly, Stephen was thinking that even if this was the comic, who knew what kind of damage it had sustained in the past 11 years? Anything from humidity to sunlight could have damaged it beyond repair. Comics can't be restored without someone noticing it, and collectors have very definitive opinions about restored comics. They're often seen as something less valuable. This comic was from 1938. It needed to be treated kindly, and here was a man carrying it like he was a waiter with a menu. Stephen's attention was diverted when Mark Belalo appeared. Stephen hadn't seen Storage Wars, had never met Belalo, knew virtually nothing of the storage unit scene. But Mark was easy enough to profile. He wore shiny shirts. He talked. A lot. He acted like the car salesman he used to be. He invited Stephen and Donald into an office. The four of them sat down. Mark seemed loose, easygoing, excited. A seven-figure payday had practically dropped itself into his lap. If he knew about Cage, or that Stephen's friend was a cop, he showed no signs of it at all. He was here to be told he was about to come into a windfall, or at least half of it. That was what he and Sylvester had agreed to. Stephen picked up the comic. Anything could have happened prior to this point. Mark and Sylvester could have gotten cold feet for whatever reason and disappeared. They could have decided to sell it to someone else. They could have sent a picture they had found online. Or Stephen could have been mistaken about the markings. There was no way for him to know for sure until he had the comic in his hands. An original action one, beautiful copy. I really appreciate, you know, contacting me about it. And this individual who seemed to think his name, he told me his name was Arthur, just off the top of my head. Arthur was Sylvester. Uh, he reiterated the story about how he got the book and they bought a storage unit and it was found inside another book. I think I might have asked, was there anything else in there? Any other comic books? They said no. And there's a little ooing and eyeing over the book. They wanted a million dollars for it. As the men talked, Stephen examined the comic. And right away, he knew. This was Nicolas Cage's action number one. A tiny white splotch inside one of the blue banners confirmed it, like a fingerprint. Missing 11 years. Found today. And not only that, in virtually the same condition it was when it was taken from Cage's house. On purpose or by accident, whoever had been in possession of it all this time had managed not to ruin it. For a comic that had been purportedly stuffed inside a storage unit, one that may not have even had a climate-controlled environment, it was pristine. Stephen wanted to exhale, but couldn't really. Couldn't tip them off. He scanned the two men in front of him, Mark and Sylvester. Stephen remembers Sylvester kept saying his name was Arthur. They were both hard to read. They didn't seem nervous. So maybe they didn't know the comic's history. Maybe they both believed they were two of the luckiest people on the planet. Stephen started talking to them to try to understand how they wound up with the comic in their hands. It was Arthur, a little bit of Mark, because Mark was really not a comic dealer, so he's, he's just trying to put, from what he said, parties together to do a deal. I'm sure he was getting a cut for his work. I asked Arthur, who obviously walked in with the book, you know, I'm trying to get some more details, wanted to see what other information. And he had his story, and he was sticking to it. 
about where it came from. So I would think that if somebody bought a storage unit, it'd be very clear on where they got it from to see if there's anything more in there. Stephen wasn't getting much more detail from either man. They were simply two people who wanted to know if the rare comic Sylvester found was the real deal. And it was. But that wasn't necessarily a good thing for them. Stephen and Donald had made an arrangement. Once Stephen was sure this was the book, he'd nod at Donald. And then Donald, who was mostly quiet up until now, would start doing all of the talking. And then Detective Horisic, who I introduced as my partner, when we walked in, grabbed his business card and handed it to the two gentlemen. And this is not a business card uh, from a comic dealer, but a business card from a police officer, a police detective. Donald announced he was a cop. And suddenly, the air seemed to go out of the room. He may as well have just set the comic book on fire. And he explains who he is, and he brings out a copy of the original police report from 2000. And I, I, I literally saw the individual who I remember as Arthur turn gray. All the blood drained from him. Everybody thought they had a million-dollar payday. Person flew out to buy the book, and here's a cop. Here's a police detective. As Mark and Sylvester winced, Donald announced he was taking possession of the comic and did just that, collecting it in its manila folder. The officers outside rushed in, making sure no one left. It was now up to Donald to determine the veracity of Sylvester's story, how he had gotten his hands on the comic. The two spoke for maybe 30 minutes behind closed doors. Stephen paced back and forth, the curiosity of a collector eating at him. Some art investigations are about finding the art, and strictly about finding the art. The how of it all can get lost amid the investigator's caseload. But here was a direct line between the comic and the man who claimed to have found it. Donald Harisic was a seasoned detective. If there was truth to be found, Stephen figured, he'd be able to find it. When Donald finished with Sylvester and walked out, Stephen went up to him, eager to get the details, eager to share them with Cage, who was about to get some very good news. Stephen half expected to see Sylvester being hustled away by officers, dragged back to the station for further questionings. But Sylvester just strolled out, unescorted. And at that point, Detective Horisic takes the individual who I remember as Arthur into another room. They probably spend about half an hour talking to him. Then they talk to Mark Olello. And Detective Horisic says, yeah, we're really not able to get any more useful information. And I said, I think this is a story that they concocted. He says, it probably is. But they're not giving me any more information about where what the, the Detective 1 or Detective 27 is. I believe that they knew it was stolen and they had a cover story already in case it gets found out. Stephen wasn't sure he was hearing Donald correctly. And why did Sylvester just get up and walk out? Pretty soon, everyone was clearing out of the warehouse. Donald returned to the LAPD, comic in tow, Stephen immediately phoned Cage, who was enthusiastic about the news. Outside, I called Nick, and I told him that the Action One is now back. And he was very, very happy. It was a very defeating feeling having his best book stolen out of his house. And it was a, a bit of a victory getting the Action One back. But even though the comic had been recovered, things felt incomplete. While the comic belonged to Cage, he had been paid by his insurance company. So really, it belonged to them, didn't it? And that was assuming Donald was prepared to return it. He had an investigation to finish to see whether Sylvester's story held up. Donald still needed to do one other thing. 
He phoned William Hughes, the man who had bought Action No. 1 from Sotheby's back in 1992, and asked for the catalog. Remember back in Episode 4? We mentioned Sotheby's took a very precise series of photos of this very comic book, and it would make all the difference later in the story? Well, my friends, later is now. Donald wanted to use those photos for comparison. In all, there were 15 tiny but distinct markings or irregularities unique to this copy, all of them painstakingly documented by the auction house. It was, as Stephen said, a perfect match. Beyond all doubt, this was Cage's comic. But how did a man named Sylvester find it? A better question nagged at Stephen. Had he really found it at all? Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The story Sylvester told Donald Harisik was a fascinating one. He said he had discovered the action number one in an abandoned storage unit he bought at auction. This seems pretty straightforward. If he bought it at auction, then you'd just try to locate the original owner of the locker to see what information they might have. After all, the comic was in their possession, right? The storage facility would have those names. So would Dan Dotson. And even if they didn't, remember that Dan had to print the names of the locker owners in the paper as a legal requirement. So all Donald would have had to do is go to the library to grab some back issues. But here's the problem. The biggest problem. Sylvester said he bought multiple storage units in March, and he simply didn't know which storage unit the comic had come from. Somehow, the contents of all of the units had gotten all mixed up. Here's Dan Dotson. That's what he had said, and um, he had been coming around for a, for a minute and, you know, bought a lot of units from a lot of different facilities, so it was pretty impossible for that time to figure out what or where. I really wasn't motivated to dig into it, figure anything out, to be honest with you. I, I don't know which facility he may have bought it from, and he said that he bought it from one of ours, so I, I didn't have any reason to doubt that. Here's Laura. Because I've been buying units and I put everything together because I was like, where, where did you find it from? Where did you get this from? What unit? And so and I'm so excited. We like to put provenance and put a story together, you know, because I just can't really tell you. I just know that it was a bunch of units and I got a bunch of stuff and, and he was buying a lot of stuff from my husband. Yeah. And my husband said, I've been selling till Sylvester. He's been buying the heck out of units. So I just think, wow, he, he scored. Sylvester had bought a lot of shit. So much shit that it co-mingled, making pinpointing where the comic came from impossible. But if Sylvester didn't know which storage unit the comic had come from, then Donald couldn't have any assurance the people who owned the lockers, if they could be found at all, wouldn't simply deny the comic had been in their particular one. It was kind of like saying that the comic had just been found in the street. The provenance, the ability to gauge where the comic came from, was lost. It was either an incredible stroke of luck for the thief, or one of the better cover stories the detective had ever heard. Here's Stephen Fischler. I don't believe that these guys 
gave the detective any specific information about any storage unit. I can't remember if they even indicated what facility they think the storage unit was. I, I don't remember that, but there was definitely pretty much a dead end in terms of uh, investigating the storage unit. If you're If you're a police detective and you believe that this is a cover story, and it really was never in a storage facility or a storage unit, you're not going to spend a bunch of time, you know, dealing with the storage units. This isn't as unusual a situation as it may seem. A lot of art has been discovered over the years. Stolen art, original art, inside storage units. If you're in possession of a rare item that's been liberated from its owner, you may not want to keep it on your property. So it's entirely possible someone decided the safest place for Cage's stolen Action Comics number one was in a storage unit. But would they simply then forget to pay the bill? Would you forget to pay the bill on a unit that had a million dollars or more inside of it? Donald Harisik was prepared to dig into this more. But then Mark Belalo, the man who Sylvester turned to for help with the comic, made a move of his own. Mark recognized the value of publicity in his line of work, and being the co-finder of Action Comics No. 1 was worthy of headlines. Before Donald could blink, Mark was talking to the press. This made Donald very unhappy. In an interview of his own, he said he wished that Mark hadn't opened his big mouth. The problem was, if anyone else happened to be involved or knew where Cage's two remaining comics were, the Detective Number 27 and the Detective Number 1, they now knew the police were chasing a lead. But Mark was pretty happy to talk about it. In fact, he ran up to Laura Dotson not long after to tell her the news. And then Balelo uh, comes to one of my sales and he says, well, you'll never believe what happened. He says, you know, we're looking at that book and we're all inside the room. And then all of a sudden he's uh, telling us, yes, this is something great. And I think, OK, the exchange is going to happen. We're going to make money. And, you know, I had your husband in and you guys for one hundred thousand dollars. I was like, what? Like a commission. We had no clue. I didn't know. You know, usually I think, well, like, I guess this is how this game works. He goes, but it all fell apart. And I go, really? And he goes, well, that turned out that I thought he was going to say it was a fake. And he says, all of a sudden the doors bust open and it was the FBI or the police. And they said this was stolen. And he goes, oh, my God. And I'm looking at the guy going, oh, God, I'm so glad I didn't buy this comic book from him. If this was a big scheme, Mark was pretty happy to talk about it. He took a photo he had taken of the Action Number no. 1 surrounded by antiques and used it to announce an upcoming sale on Facebook. And then he dressed up as Superman, cape and all, for one of his live auctions. As much as Donald hated the attention, Mark was loving it. It wasn't more than a few weeks before Donald ran out of reasons to keep the comic. Sylvester's story wasn't something that could be proven or disproven. And the law says that you're only in trouble for possession of stolen material if you know it was stolen, you should have known it was stolen, or you admit to stealing it. Donald couldn't prove Mark or Sylvester knew it was Cage's comic or a stolen comic, and there was nothing linking the two back to the night of Cage's party in 2000. For Stephen, the news was bittersweet. The comic was back, but it came without much of an explanation. And whether the reason was Mark Belalo talking or something else, Stephen felt Donald wasn't that interested in chasing the only lead they had. Very frustrating. And then when I finally called him up, the only reason he paid attention was because I said, here's the name of the person who has Here's the address they're at. They're offering it to me. I'm flying out. I have a flight. You can't spell it out more than that. I think it, who it was stolen from, I think he took it seriously. Uh, I just think, you know, they might be overwhelmed, and unless they're given something super concrete, they don't have the time to track everything down. Cage, for his part, declared the discovery divine providence and hoped the heirloom, his words, would be returned to his family. 
Reports indicated Cage had the option of returning the money the insurance company had given him for the comic, possibly with inflation. If he did, the comic would be handed back to him. In the 14 years since Cage first purchased it, Action Number no. 1 had appreciated in value. By a lot. Remember that Stephen Fischler sold two Action Number no. 1s in 2010 for over a million dollars each, neither in as good a condition as the Cage copy. Cage wanted the book back, but he didn't want to keep it. And the police had an investigation for a number of months and kept it in a safe at a secure police location. And then I eventually, in another trip to California, I came and picked up the book when the police released it and brought it back to New York. And we eventually sold it for Nick. The sentimental value of the comic was probably still there for Cage. Once someone falls for Superman, they tend to admire him forever. But by this point, Cage's unusual approach to financial planning was well-known. It involved spending. He admitted he loved spending money on homes and cars and rarities. There were reports he owned an island or two in the Bahamas. He owned a Gulfstream jet, four yachts, at one point, 50 cars and his own mechanic. A Tyrannosaurus skull was procured for $276,000, then returned when it was found to have been stolen from Mongolia. Cage, of course, had no idea it was illicit. Buying hot dino bones was certainly expensive, but what really dampened Cage's spending was real estate. The market took a bad turn, and the many properties he had became difficult to maintain or sell off. Even the Bel Air mansion, where the comic was originally stolen, went up for sale. Cage didn't have much of a choice. He had $18 million in loans against it. It did eventually sell, for only a fraction of Cage's $35 million asking price. So, Superman would have to be a savior in another way. Cage returned the money to the insurance company, and then he put the comic up for auction with Stephen Fischler. They submitted the book to the CGC, the last word in third-party comic book grading, where it received a 9 out of 10, at the time the highest ever awarded in action number one. In November of 2011, the book fetched an incredible $2.161 million, a new record for a comic book sale, which undoubtedly helped Cage attend to at least a portion of his debt. This truly was divine providence. The comic found a new home with an undisclosed buyer, one who would, presumably, take more precautions than Cage had in safekeeping it. Mark and Sylvester were off the hook. Sylvester had seemed to materialize on the auction scene suddenly, and after the comic deal turned sour, he seemed to disappear just as quickly. Here's Laura Dotson. Yes, it was something like, uh, how often does this happen? And we came across this, and we just don't know how to sell it or get it appraised, and this just fell into our lap from these units we've been buying. And I'm thinking, well, here comes another fantastic treasure hunt story. And as quick as he came onto the picture in the scene, I had never seen him again either. There are questions left dangling. Did Mark really happen to call Stephen Fischler by happenstance? Did Sylvester really find the comic in a storage locker? If he did, who did the locker belong to? Stephen doesn't think there is an original owner. I believe that they concocted the story as a, a plausible cover. So they went, all right, here's what we'll do. I've got this book. I'll just say it came from a storage unit. That'll be it. But I don't, I don't really believe that that was the case. But where the book was, if I was to put together reasonable details, it left Nick's house, the person who stole it out of the house, sold it, and may have sold it to the individual who had it all these years, who I met and wanted a million dollars for it. I, I don't think 
it bounced around for many people. However many people it bounced around with, it landed with Sylvester and Mark. Sylvester virtually disappeared. And Mark? Well, Mark was already in some trouble. Trouble that ended tragically and under some slightly suspicious circumstances. To try to make sense of it, we're going back to the warehouse, this time from the perspective of the people who worked there. We're going to get more help from a reformed art thief, and yes, we're going to see if we can find the elusive Sylvester and see if he's finally ready to talk. Oh, Sylvester, his name is right, but please don't tell me there's a character in this called Tweety Pie as well. That's next time on the finale of Stealing Superman. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Jonathan Washington. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson, with production support from Lulu Phillip. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com.